Hello there. Welcome to So Uncivilized, the show where we prattle on about our favorite part of the prequels, Obi-Wan, now streaming on Disney+. And yes, how, I'm going to use that voice for every goddamn opening we do this. How does your how does your Obi-Wan Kenobi voice sound exactly like your Steve Bonnet voice? <laughs> okay, I have I do a New Zealand <laughs> accent for Steed though. Okay, but you're you're really teetering on the edge there. Like the <laughs> accent isn't there, but that's 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 pretty much your Steed voice. <laughs> Oh, no, mate. I mean, I sound my way more relaxed, a bit chipper at Steed. Whereas with Obi-Wan, I sound much more <laughs> uptight and formal to the character. <laughs> okay, when, when you... Okay, on that, that passive, it, I, I suddenly felt the need to call you a dame. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hi, everyone. <laughs> well, welcome to So Uncivilized. A show about a man being very sad in the desert. <laughs> so we're going to do things a little bit differently here. Since this is us talking about Star Wars, why not do it in the form of a trilogy special? So for episode one, we're going to do the first three episodes of Obi-Wan. For episode two, we're going to talk about the last three episodes. And for episode three, we're going to talk about basically what the prequels mean to us. <laughs> so... There you have it, folks. This is this is secretly our master plan at getting around the fact that between Maureen looking for a new job and me hitting my stride schedule-wise at the many gigs that I currently have as a nanny, we've been having a hard time keeping on schedule. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what is your first star wars memory not even watching the movies but just like the first memory you have where you saw something pertaining to star wars and uh, you go in like what what is that what do i what muppet baby star wars episode i was just about to say that <laughs> <laughs> can you tell we were born in the late 80s folks <laughs> Yeah, like, I loved Muppet Babies, and every now and then they would show a reference to a movie that I had no knowledge of, but I remember, like, most of them were, like, older movies in, like, the 20s and 30s, or, like, Chaplin thing. Yeah. Like, when they had, there, like... There wasn't, wasn't there something with, like, the Lon Chaney Phantom of the Opera being, like, the one who turned off the power to their house? That, you know what? Oh, my that's, God. That's... That's very, uh, you know, then who was flickering the light? Oh my god! Too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember they did some Keystone Cop references also, but, um, yeah, they did a lot of, they showed a lot of clips of Star Wars, of, like, X-Wing fighters and TIE fighters, and I was just like, what is this? And later on, I would hear adults talk about, like, Darth Vader, Yoda, and I would have no idea what they were talking about. And it wasn't until I was about seven or eight where I saw the original trilogy on VHS for the first time. And, yeah, what uh, what was your experience watching the original trilogy, like, for the first well, time? I, I wanted to clarify that it wasn't just that they used clips from Star Wars. It was the fact that Muppet Babies actually had an entire New Hope episode. That's right. Yeah. Kermit Skyhopper. 
Oh, oh yeah, and you know what? At about yeah. <laughs> at about the same time, there was an entire episode of reference to a New Hope on Tiny Toons. <laughs> I don't think I don't think I saw that one. Although I do remember. Um, although this probably came later in life, considering what it was, I do remember when I was probably at least seven or eight years old that there was. Um, there was an episode of Rocco's Modern Life where Heifer gets a job as a landscaper on a golf course and for absolutely no reason ever explained, his boss is a parody of Darth Vader. <laughs> like, like a, you know, golf course supervision Darth Vader, you know, as one does. <laughs> uh, so... What was what was it like watching the trilogy for the first time? So I I can't remember exactly under what circumstances I ended up watching all of them. I am pretty sure that the first time I saw A New Hope was actually when they did the re-release in 2007. So yeah, that that checks out. I would have been 8 years old. Okay, um, that's that's a lot later uh than I would have imagined. <laughs> Well, the thing is, is that, you know, the only one of my parents that is really into Star Wars is my stepmom. And this was before, even though she was a regular part of my life, and actually at that point, um, she was expecting my uh, little sister. That was before we had had a lot of time to really one-on-one hang out. You know, she was she was my dad's girlfriend, and she mostly hung out with us, you know, family style and you know so my mom is was very familiar with star wars it just was never her thing and in fact i remember her saying that she remember so she would have been 13 years old when a new hope came out and apparently she actually fell asleep in the theater and she didn't quite get what the big deal was (laughs) but her friends were really in it into it and apparently she even set aside a good chunk of her Halloween that year to help her friend make the Leia buns. Aww. And as for my dad, he I think part of it is just my dad is not much of a fantasy person in general. I actually remember having a discussion with him a while after um, The Force Awakens came out when I actually went back to California to visit. And he was talking about how he just he couldn't get into it and he feels like you know when he goes and sees the movie he's like all right and now they're having the laser sword fight and now this is happening and it it happens this way in each movie and I kind of paused and I was like and I was like well I mean you know I have a feeling it's just not your genre and he just goes I mean I don't know you know I'm not super into Star Trek but I you know when I'm watching (laughs) it I follow along and I kind of paused and I was like you know what that probably is it's it's probably because Star Trek, in a lot of ways, is like naval fiction in space, and Star Wars is like Lord of the Rings in space. And he's like, you know, I think that's it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's Star Wars. It's not actually (laughs) (laughs) sci-fi. Oh, that's a whole cabinet of worms there. (laughs) Oh, well... I mean, but I mean, just like in terms of like literary I know. genre, that's that's all I mean. I'm not here to argue over fine nerd points. <laughs> I just mean that just generally speaking in terms of the types of, I mean, 
and I say this even as somebody who was only familiar with Star Trek by osmosis when we had that conversation, but I learned enough at that point to just be like, I mean, dad, it's like hornblower in space. That's probably why, even if it's not your thing, you can follow along with it. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, yeah. Whereas star Wars is, you know, it's, it's, it's an epic it's, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a saga in like the Norse Mm -hmm. sense, really. So even though my mom wasn't really uh, into Star Wars, at the very least, she seemed to think that it was still something that, like, my brother and I needed to have in our lives, which is really funny when you think back on it. So she brought us to see the re-release of A New Hope, and I I took to it. I, I think I might have still had kind of some of the same impression that it seems like people had when it first came out in the, in the 70s of just being like, this is weird. I like it, though. Um, I don't think I really got into it until uh, The Phantom Menace came out. And by the way, my mom fell asleep in the theater watching The Phantom Menace as well. So, you know, points to my mom for consistency. (laughs) And The Phantom Menace was really where it happened because, um, for one thing, I was 10 when that came out. And here's the thing. There was a 14-year-old girl in those movies. (laughs) A 14-year-old girl that they made dolls of. Mm. So as you can imagine, I took very strongly to that thing. <laughs> Pretty much from the start. And, you know, and I... It sounds weird to put it this way, but I fully believe it. I think that one of the reasons that I didn't quite get attached to Leia in the same way, at first anyway, was because, at least in the 90s, they weren't making girly toys of her. Ah, uh, yeah. They just weren't. I mean, they made collector dolls, but, you know, I'm I'm kind of jealous of, you know, kids these days where you can go and get, you know, a slightly cartoonified looking Leia Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved that when I was a kid, but when, uh, when Phantom Menace came out, they went crazy with marketing Padme dolls. <laughs> I had so many different outfits. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually, that was my Halloween costume that year. so when i was 10 they re-released uh the original trilogy in theaters for the 20th uh anniversary of a new hope and it really was uh a special experience seeing them like in the theaters as they were like made to be seen at the time uh the biggest controversy around star wars was when they were uh re-released in the theaters it was basically an excuse to have them be the special edition versions, uh, which replaced <laughs> them in all videos and DVD sales of like adding extra CGI and the birth of Greedo shot first memes and angry fanboys <laughs> pissed everywhere. Uh, and of course, like I like this was literally my first time seeing seeing star wars in the theater so i just did not give a shit about any of that i was just excited to see star wars on the big screen pretty much yeah i was uh 12 years old when the phantom menace was released and again i loved the original trilogy but at no point watching it was i mad uh it was like (laughs) I just felt like, okay, this is different. There are clearly a lot of new characters, but it's still exciting. It still has good action scenes. I, overall, I liked it. And then I uh, 
heard all of like the fanboy vitriol and like keep in mind this was like about like the very uh earliest time i was starting to uh really get into like the film fandom and like read movie reviews and understand criticism so like this was also at a time when like uh reading about movies on the internet was pretty much probably even more toxic then than it is now to be honest because they're just like the only voices back then were like 20 something white guys with very strong opinions trademark um and so I just never understood why the prequels made them so angry. And uh, then for episode two and three, like, yeah, I definitely thought that they weren't as good as the originals, but I do, but I did like what they were trying to say. And it also uh, probably didn't help matters, but I was in high school and I had like the biggest crush on Hayden Christensen. <laughs> <laughs> Like, which I can only imagine must have made certain parts of episode three very difficult. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I made friends with a girl senior year because she had, like, a trapper keeper that had, like, this collage of pictures of Anakin in episode three. <laughs> <laughs> you, know what the, you know what the strangest thing Star Wars got me into is? What? Paper dolls. Oh. They made they made Padme paper dolls. That's right. <laughs> yeah, and I I had both sets because I guess they didn't want to make one for the movie where she dies of ambiguous causes. <laughs> but but I but I had them and I you know carefully labored over cutting them out, and I actually used them and it was actually enough of a big deal for me that I actually started making my own paper dolls and it's still something I occasionally do. Nice. So during a lot of uh, interviews and promo for this show, uh, Ewan and Hayden were asked, do they think that uh, now that it's been uh, over 20 years, people are starting to like see the prequels in a new light, starting to like uh, be kinder towards them. And do you think the idea that the prequels are being reevaluated and seen in a bit of a better light now is genuine because the people who were kids are now grown up? Or is it more of like a cynical PR move to help justify the existence of shows like these? I would probably say it's the former really is the thing. Like, you know, the, the thing about Star Wars is it's always been for 12 year olds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you know, and, and, if anything, I would say that probably the craziest thing about this show is I don't think this show is for 12 year olds, but yeah. <laughs> the movies, the movies, they're for 12 year olds. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so naturally you're going to get a lot of reevaluation as people who were 12 when these movies came out. And in this case, I guess 12 is more of a social group than the age you actually had to be, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And so I, I personally think that that's the case. I think that, you know, there's been enough time for reassessment. And on top of that, yeah, you know, people who grew up with these are, you know, for, I think for a lot of people in our generation, this was our new hope. 
you know, everybody talks about how, like, oh, you know, the, the new, you know, the new ones, they're shitting on our childhoods. Well, like, you know, well, that's also how people felt about, you know, the prequels coming out. But, you know, lots of people, lots of childhoods. I mean, I have a very good friend uh, who said something that just, like, hit me. It's so true. There is only one person allowed to say that the Star Wars prequels ruined their childhood, and that is Jake Lloyd. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and if anything, it, it really makes... it Not to get really wanky on my own here, but if anything, I think that it actually really says something that, you know, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I work with children. I work with children who are in the Star Wars target audience, and it genuinely, it to me, is a bigger indictment than what anybody could say about it online. That I... Kids didn't really get into Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> that makes me happy. <laughs> it, it's and, and the thing is, is that it's just... All nostalgia aside, that is, that is the only, like, mainline Star Wars movie where at this point I'm just like, you know what? This is a bad movie. Yeah, I, I I've finally seen it, and it's it's a bad movie. It's I've... a bad movie, and it's a complete disservice to ever not only as a standalone, which I think to some extent for film criticism you have to you have to look at these things sometimes and not think about it as somebody who likes Star Wars. But I just I there's I mean even having finally seen it now. The only thing from that movie that I ever think about positively is the little hey, hey guy. <laughs> but you know what? I think everybody loved him. Oh, I love that little guy. But I talked... I, I can't even remember his name. Babu but... Frick. He was Thank awesome. You. I said it before in an earlier episode, but it bears repeating. There is nothing about the prequel trilogy that personally offended me as Rise of Skywalker did. Well, that's, that's the thing, is that I feel like anything, you know, aside from, like, you know, clunkiness or something, which I personally think is part of the charm of Star Wars, mm -hmm. but aside from, you know, any, you know, general clunkiness or anything, complaints you can make about it, it, the story zigzags away from everything that's come before it. To an extent where it, it can't even be said to be saying anything new or anything. In fact, the part of the problem is actually that it drowns itself in nostalgia to the point where the story falls apart. Yeah. Which is kind of, you know, the opposite of, of what do you mean? This isn't exactly like the movie that came out when I was 12. Clearly, this is shit. It's like, no, the, the problem is actually that they listened too much to people like that. Yeah. Yeah, which kind of brings me uh, to my issue with uh, the Obi-Wan series. And that's, I'm very skeptical of all these Disney Plus Star Wars shows claiming they exist because they have all new stories to tell with all new possibilities. And it's becoming more and more apparent to me they're just turning out to be nothing more than, hey, you know all these characters from Clone Wars and Rebels? Well, what if they were in live action? I mean, I can see that, but on the other hand, one of the things that's already impressed me about this show is that there's a great throwaway bit where 
a character that I, I'm going to be honest, it kind of bypassed me the first time I heard it. But they, they name drop an important character from those shows. But it really is just like, oh, he's passed through here. It just establishes that he's alive. It's cool. I just remember when I went to my first Star Wars celebration uh, when it came to Chicago. Like, I had watched all the films several times, and I barely understood what the characters people were dressed as and what they were talking about. <laughs> and it's like, I just get annoyed. I just get so annoyed when something that's treated as this huge reveal or huge bit of fan service, and I have no idea what the hell I'm supposed to be cheering at because I've never seen an animated spin off or played a video game or read a Wikipedia article. And it's like, TV should not be homework. <laughs> well, I mean, on the other hand, once again, bearing in mind that most of Star Wars is media for 12 year olds, keep in mind a lot of, a lot of, you know, older Gen Zers that are going and watching this show, their childhood Star Wars would have been Clone Wars. True. Or Rebels. <laughs> You know, I, I feel like even though this this show I genuinely feel is not for children, I think that it's really important when you're discussing anything with Star Wars that you don't, you, you've always just got to keep at the forefront, especially now that it's become something that just repeatedly builds on something that whenever they come up with anything genuinely new, it's going to include a throwback to a decent chunk of the viewership's childhood. Fair. And in this case, that means just, you know, for the, I mean, it's also probably the easiest way for them to keep making this universe actually feel properly big while still using characters that were attached to what at this point is still, you know, the big Skywalker clusterfuck. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so the setup for the plot reminded me a lot of, uh, you were right about like this show not being for kids because for me it feels more like a gritty british crime drama in space because it's it's the older man being told i tell you i don't do that sort of thing no more you you just went back into the steed bonnet voice. <laughs> no. i mean and in that one it was it was definitely the kiwi accent <laughs> it's that, supposed that to be was... cockney mate Oh my god. No, but it's totally like this older man who like he thought he had left that life behind him and then he gets dragged back in because like there's an innocent little girl whose life is being threatened and it's just like a whole bunch of shit goes down. Or you know, it might even make you think of another very you know, another particular famous story. About an older man on the run with a little girl after a promise that he made to her dying mother. While they are pursued by an absolutely obsessed cop who for one reason or another is completely after him personally. Even though presumably there's a hell of a lot of other things for them to be copping about at the moment. <laughs> by which I mean, this show is lame is. And now you know why we put that music in. <laughs> Thank you for sticking with us long enough for that, folks. We love you. Uh, I also made a joke when we were uh, first talking about this show. It's basically the last Jedi of us in terms of an older man and finding the <laughs> surrogate daughter who he has to keep safe at all times. <laughs> I'm going to trust you on that one. 
is is there an obsessed cop in the last of us is that also lame as the video game no oh no 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 that's pretty much where the similarities end but it's based, uh, yeah it has more zombies <laughs> and it's not 2007 we don't need lame is but also with zombies <laughs> I do feel that there is just, I don't know about you, but I feel like there's just a touch of mischaracterization with uh, Leia here in that uh, she was never that perceptive that way as an adult that she is here. Like in the original and even the sequel trilogies, we never see her like cut to the core of someone's insecurity and read them to filth like she does. I mean, she actually does that really well with Han Solo, except his response is to basically just open his mouth and sputter and then point at her really emphatically. Okay, yeah, but it's more of like, here is like, almost Leia's like, has a way more mature way, as opposed to you scruffy looking nerf herder. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as somebody once put it on, on Twitter, she was expecting to be, you know, rescued by, you know, SEAL Team 6, not Cheech and Chong. (laughs) And so I think to some extent that hasn't worn off. <laughs> it, it, it has not escaped this woman by that point that, you know, her own rescue attempt ended up turning into her, like, you know, walking down the hall going Rambo while Luke stood behind her like, what in the hell is happening? Oh my god, I love it. That is, yeah, it's 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 the Chronicles of Prydain. It's Ilanwi, who's this princess who's also in a dungeon <laughs> rescued by a freaking pig farmer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I personally, I, I personally love little Leia in this. I mean, how little Leia is designed to make you love her. That's really the whole point. I know, but it's working, and I think she, <laughs> I think she's a delight, and it's also entirely easy for me to that. I mean, for one thing, you mentioned the whole scruffy-looking nerf herder thing. Of course she was kind of reverting at that point. She doesn't have a big fat crush on Obi-Wan and she doesn't have some kind of like a yeah well you know so's your face relationship with him <laughs> like she and Han clearly have before they finally end up kissing each other. Uh, I mean I, I, w- I will admit uh, when I first saw her I was just a bit thrown off of like that's a 10 year old because when I was that age, I was basically like the size of Kristen Chenoweth. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, for one thing, I know that the little actress is younger, but I kind of assume that that's also just kind of a throwback to the fact that, so Carrie Fisher was depending on the source, five foot solid or five foot one. And for some reason, Leia's canon adult height is inexplicably four foot ten. Really? Yeah, I don't know if that's how I don't know if that's how tall Carrie Fisher was when they filmed because I know she was a teenager and maybe she had like one last growth spurt after A New Hope or something. But apparently, like, like if you go and look on her Wikipedia page, Leia's like listed as like four nine or four ten. It's crazy. So I they were probably thinking about like okay. Carrie Fisher was tiny. Leia is apparently even tinier. <laughs> we clearly need to cast her small. <laughs> uh, 
so I don't know if you were thinking of this or if you even uh, or if you even knew about this series beforehand, but uh, the planet where they're trying to get off full of smugglers, it's very Blade Runner-y. Yeah, yeah, I was actually going to call it Planet Blade Runner if we were going to take more of a recap approach, but at this point I guess we're just going crazy here, folks. Yeah, we're just going to talk about all three episodes and what we liked about them, what we didn't, like in a huge jumble. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that, but... But we're definitely assuming that you have watched the first three episodes of Ob One by the time, by the time you're listening to this. Yep. But the whole art direction it reminded me a lot of the scrapped uh, TV series Star Wars Underworld. As oh yeah, I heard of it. Wasn't that going to be like the Palpatine backstory? Yeah, it was supposed to take place between like Revenge of the Sith and New Hope, and that was like at the time the first ever uh, proposed Star Wars TV show. I think in like two thousand seven, two thousand eight. That was uh, back when uh, George Lucas was still pitching it. Right, yeah. And I'm just very curious to see, like, how much of that, how much of these were, like, leftovers uh, from that. Or, like, how much, like, other scrapped projects uh, make up winding their way into the shows just in, like, slightly different forms. Oh, boy, you have no idea how much behind-the-scenes visual recycling there is in Star Wars. I can believe it. (laughs) (laughs) Like, there is, like... You know, okay, going into something that, you know, I know that you mentioned that you weren't super familiar with the Clone Wars cartoon. There's a character in there named Asajj Ventress. She is actually basically an upcycled version of an early pitch for the character that ended up being Darth Maul. Oh. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she ended up a pretty beloved character to the point where they actually gave her a pretty cool redemption arc and apparently... The last book that she showed up in is basically a pulp wartime romance, which is pretty cool. Good for her. Interesting, because <laughs> when I think of, like, Darth Maul, but female, I think of, like, Darth Talon. Well, I mean, visually, it was that, you know, it was kind of one of those things where it's like, so this was at a time when pretty much all the concept art was still uh, Ralph McQuarrie. It would basically be just, you know, George Lucas would just be like, hey, Ralph! give me some Sith concepts. And he would be like, yo, and he would give him some Sith concepts. And, you know, and he came up with a number of them and some of them were very androgynous or almost, you know, feminine. And one of the more feminine looking ones ended up being turned into Ventress, like design wise anyway, just not like character wise. And I think that they linked it by the fact that um, if I remember correctly, they're from the same planet, I think, except he's a, he's, you know, he's got the horns and all that. And she's from a more, you know, overtly humanoid species because like, I do know that, um, like, for example, like they did end up establishing that like, she can have hair. She just shaves her head through most of Clone Wars, but eventually in like some of the follow-up comics and stuff, her hair has grown back a bit and you know, it's just regular white hair, <laughs> you know, it's not that it's, it's not like, if I remember, maybe I'm wrong. I don't think it's quite like stupid species dimorphism <laughs> or something. I'm not sure. So as we are recording this, uh, it will have been the one year anniversary 
since uh, Loki streamed on Disney Plus and oh, yeah. where we got the idea to do a podcast in the first place. But watching uh, the series reminded me of uh, watching Loki for the first time and realizing that it did such, in my opinion, a better job at pacing, capturing interest, and growing tension because so far no episode has ended on like a mystery or a shocking reveal, and I don't consider Obi-Wan discovering Anakin is still alive to be a reveal because it's not a reveal for us. There's really... I mean, the third episode does end with Reva taking Leia capture. Okay. I don't know, that seems like just more of like a regular cliffhanger, but there's, there's really no sense of this character starts off with X ideology, but now they're leaning more into Y ideology, or this character is taking... I mean, technically we've, technically we've, we have already seen that happen, although I will say it's something that we only know through, um, we only know through comparison with knowing what happens next in the original trilogy, and that's that this is why we totally understand why Obi-Wan thinks that Anakin is completely unsalvageable. Uh, okay. Which I which I do think is an important point because I remember for years there was a whole lot of like, wow, he was having a breakdown. And mind you, it was a very, very bad breakdown. It was a, I mean, I don't even mean this to repeat the Loki joke because let's be real. This was way worse than a Loki breakdown. <laughs> um, you know, like. Let, let, let's be honest here, whatever superficial similarities you can make, Loki was just coming off of, you know, a 21-day coke bender. <laughs> Whereas then Anakin, who I also believe has probably never tried drugs in his life to his detriment. Um, <laughs> he, look, should Anakin, have bought, Anakin, he should have bought some death sticks. Oh, God, you know, Anakin Skywalker, who had sex with one girl, <laughs> and, and has, and, and probably never tried weed. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm thinking of this, there's actually this really great quote in an interview where George Lucas is talking about how, like, really the most tragic thing about Anakin is that despite all of his promise and everything surrounding him, even when you think about him as Vader, honestly, he never really amounted to anything. But in, like, a really tragic way. Not in a, wow, that was a waste of a plot way. But, like, you know, he ultimately, you know, he he went from being a slave to being, you know, completely under the order's thumb. You know, ha you know not able to love the woman that he ended up marrying freely. And then, you know, after, you know, falling under Palpatine's influence, he does absolutely unspeakable things, ends up, you know, mutilated and on the brink of death. And he spends all but the last five minutes of his life from that point on as being Palpatine's enforcer. He was never free. Yeah. He, and, you know, and, the, and that's the thing that, that, that Lucas was pointing out in this interview is that, you know, ultimately he's, he's a sad failed man. And uh, the interviewer at that point kind of chimes in, I can't remember who it was, but the interviewer chimes in and suggests, you know, he's not Satan. He's the guy who runs to the corner to get Satan, his cigarettes. Ooh. And, Lu 
Yeah, and Lucas says, you got it. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's why I would argue that, if anything, the prequels are far more relevant today than they ever were uh, upon release because they, because they give the extremely important uh, cautionary tale of young white men who have been told that they're special and the second they don't get their way completely lose their minds and slip into fascism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although, on the other hand, compared to most of these real-life cases, Anakin really was a very strange case of being told that he personally was special. Not just that he was part of a special class, although, I mean, he was, but he was being told that by other people who were part of that same special class. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just the idea of, you know, the Jedi or whatever that was impressed upon him, because he was actually clearly starting to have some doubts about that. It's the fact that he was constantly told that he personally was that important not just that he is an example of the most important type of person, which is where I, I think a lot of these modern-day, real-life internet fascists end up getting it from. Anakin has been told, since he was nine years old, that he is quite literally the most important person in the galaxy. He's being told that. At the same time, he's being told that he can't do shit. Mm-hmm. Which is, to me, I think that's the big distinguishing factor. It's not just that he's, it's not just that he's being told that he can't, you know. Here's the thing. If nobody told Anakin that he was supposed to be the chosen one, it might not have ended up this way. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. But that's, because that's, that's the real, that's, that's like the core of the thing with him. It's, you know, once again, it's, it's not just that he thought that because he was a Jedi, he could do whatever he wanted. It's the fact that it was constantly impressed on him that he personally was the most important person to exist, and possibly then... in history. But at the same time, he couldn't be trusted with even, you know, I it it actually does completely make sense. I, I mean, even if we can tell that, like, you know, his, you know, frankly, you know, I think that one of the things that gets brought up a lot of times with, you know, and then he flips out when he's told he can't do what he wants to do is, you know, the way that he protests that, you know, being put on the council but not having any power, like, you know, you can't do this to me. But here's the thing, they shouldn't have put him on the fucking council I was if just, they didn't intend that. You know, I was just it, about to say, of like, they tell him, like, he's chosen, you're the most important person in the world, you are, like, actually superior down to your genetic code, and then they get mad when he, like, wants to have authority and says... He's gotten arrogant. There's a reason that at the very least, off the top of my head and to the best of my knowledge, you've never had a Dalai Lama that went off the deep end like that. <laughs> and the Jedi are basically like the medieval version of the Catholic Church combined with the military. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're basically the Knights Templar in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So it, it and and bringing it back to the show though, I think that probably one of the most important things that this show does though is what it does with Vader. 
Because for one thing, it reestablishes, oh my god, this guy is terrifying. <laughs> and, you know, but it also emphasizes, you know, I know that part of it was just like, you know, oh shit, you guys, we're going to get them in the same space together and we're going to make them fight again. Except I ended up, and at first I was just kind of like, I mean, that feels fairly obligatory, like my dad said. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but then it gets to the scene, and I guess what got me was, it wasn't a Star Wars fight scene. It wasn't that in the slightest. It was, it was pretty much, you know, I, I, think, I think part of what made it so scary to me, other than the lashing out at the townsfolk and stuff, which we'd already gotten a bit of a pre preview of in, in Rogue One, which, by the way, I stand by my feelings that Rogue One is a is probably the best modern Star Wars movie. Hmm. After, you know, like, I mean, since the prequels. And I think that the reason it is is because it's functionally... It is functionally a World War II codebreaker movie that just happens to take place in Star Wars. And was not afraid to kill off its entire cast, but still managed to end it on a note that we know is going to go somewhere wonderful. <laughs> but anyway, we don't we don't have to include that in there yeah, if you sure. don't want to. But um, but what really got me about this is that it is the only time we have ever seen. Other, other than, you know, when he finally turns on Palpatine to save, to save Luke's life in the end. We have never seen Vader this personally angry in such a deranged, wounded sort of way. Mm. And that, to me, was, was that was when it was like, okay, I see why they put him in this series now. It's a very important bridging point, I think, between watching Anakin nearly die and then Darth Vader coming out of the mist on the transport on Leia's ship. You I know, I, just, just the fact that his entire reason for wanting to do this is literally just, you know, the fact that he literally tries to kill Obi-Wan by leaving him to burn to death. That's, that was one of the very few high points for me watching that when it got to that, I think I actually said, "Oh shit!" out loud. And it worked for me because it was one of the few moments that made one hundred percent perfect sense for why the characters would do that. I think the reason it worked for me is because even the way that he's attacking the townspeople and everything, it is entirely Vader basically doing an extremely violent version of banging his baseball bat against the against the fence and shouting Obi-Wan come out and play <laughs> he's it's he's basically just I know you're here I know you're here you piece of shit come see what you did to me and that that was the other thing was the fact that you know I, I the contextualizing it so he's just like you know take a good long look at what you did to me I liked that. I, I thought that that was a really good touch because it's, and it really helps contextualize the later, you know, the way that he finds him to be completely lost into what he's become. Mm -hmm. And, you know, by the time he's turned into Alec Guinness. Yeah. 
I do find that to be very amusing that it's official. There's only 10 years between him becoming Ewan to Alec. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, he's a white man living in the desert. What do you expect? I was about to make that joke. Uh, So, so for new characters, I'm still on the fence about Inquisitor Riva because I feel like the show is very adamant that you don't like her. What I find interesting is that there are scraps of implied backstory that would paint her in a sympathetic light, but any time you think anything deeper might be done about that, she goes, well, time to kill a child now. Well, I think that that's intentional. I get the, I get the feeling that that's very intentional and that it almost, it almost serves as a weird audience version of her doing it's it's almost like the show does for her the same thing that she does around everybody around her as soon as there's a moment of a crack showing it gets closed up again very very aggressively i mean that that you kind of get the impression that that's a lot of why she does what she's doing right now and i and for that matter now that you say that considering it doesn't connect with anything else I am almost certain that she was one of those kids we saw escaping the temple at the beginning during Order 66. Oh, that would... Oh. Oh, that would be good. That would actually explain why it had to open that way. Yeah, that's... That's what I'm thinking there. Yeah, because, like... Oh, it would be... It would be... Like, she's... Her character is just, like, coming up short in terms of, like, want and motivation. Because we, I still don't know why, she, uh, like, of all things, she wants to find Obi-Wan specifically, even though she doesn't have anything personal against him that Vader has. Well, he didn't show up in the temple when there were children trying to get out now, did she? Did he? I God, I hope you're actually. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thinking that it, you know, that there might be some sense of, you know, especially because let let's be real, the Jedi in general tended to be assholes. Yep. <laughs> oh, Obi Wan. Generally nice. That's... Obviously, you know, he will occasionally accidentally do horrifying things like leaving Anakin there to burn to death with no limbs but on the other hand what could he have really done about that at that point like when people make jokes about that it's kind of like well what was what was Obi-Wan supposed to do that's another thing that uh just reminded me of like every now and then the show gets really close at like questioning things and then it just like leaves them by the side of the road like one of the few things that i found so interesting and just wish like they'd really examine it more of like obi like obi-wan becoming dangerously close to self-awareness when he talks to leia about his only memories of his old family and the idea that he had a little brother and he has no idea where they are now it's like oh you're so close show you're so close well i know but at the same time then nothing he does in the originals would make sense because let's be real if anything it just provides context for the fact that you know come return of the jedi luke's like well 
Anyway, off to go save my dad's soul, and Obi-Wan's ghost is standing there just like, are, are you fucking kidding me? Uh, I've seen what that guy does. <laughs> and, and it's no longer coming from a place of like, look, look, he freaked out, so I cut off all his limbs and I left him to burn to death. He's just like, no, 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 you, you don't know what you're dealing with. And Luke's like, of course I know what I'm dealing with. He's my dad. And what do you know? It turns out Luke is right. <laughs> But, like, but the idea of, like, coming so close to realizing, hey, now that you think about it, it really is fucked up that we took away children from their families and they never saw them again. Yeah, I I think it's mostly just that as much as we all love him, there are certain things that Obi-Wan just never comes to question. Yeah. And I think that that's his biggest flaw because otherwise he's clearly, like, one of the most like compassionate and grounded Jedi that we see. I mean, you know, and we find out that, you know, there, there were a lot of times that, you know, he wanted to leave the order and go, you know, I think that the problem with both him and Anakin, frankly, was honestly, they were both too good at being Jedi and in different ways it destroyed both of them. Yeah. I mean, I would go even further and say that the biggest rift of their relationship was that uh, they really did see each other as brothers, but Obi-Wan had to be Anakin's father figure because Qui-Gon couldn't. Oh, yeah, well, you know, I think it goes without saying, there's only like a 10-year age difference there. Mm -hmm. And that's difficult. I mean, as we've talked about on this show before, I think even like, you know... Even just, I remember being, you know, 22 and on my first nanny job and one of my charges was 10. And at one point she actually straight up said, like, you were only 12 when I was born. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, come to think of it, yeah. You know, that's a, that's a whole thing, you know, if there's not that... Or what's that line from, from Lilo and Stitch? I liked you so much better as a sister than a mom. Ah, uh, yeah. Something like that, you know. They're close enough that they, that, you know, they should have been, they should have been friends and brothers, but Obi-Wan also had to be his master way too young. I mean, he's like, he was like 24 when that happened, right? Yeah. No, I think like 26. No, no, no he was younger. Or, I thought he was, or is there a chance that he was younger than that? I don't know. How, how old is he supposed to be in the first one? <laughs> I don't know canonically his age, but I just know that Ewan was like 27 during filming. Okay, okay. Yeah, and I I I don't know how good I would be at looking up how old Obi-Wan the character was supposed to be just because they all use the they all use a special Star Wars calendar. Let's where just everything say 20. Is either before or after. Yeah, he he was in his 20s. Yeah. <laughs> he was uh, in his 20s and he had no business having to suddenly basically adopt a 9-year-old. Mhm. Mm Speaking of relations... A nine-year-old who had actually had a chance to bond with his mother, for that matter. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that the reason why Luke was one of the most well-adjusted Jedi is because he actually did get to have a normal childhood, and it wasn't until he was 19, which is, uh, like, yeah, it wasn't until, like, basically reaching young adulthood that he actually could make the decision of his own accord without being coerced by anyone. Yeah. I mean... He, I guess he was technically coerced by the fact that, you know, his aunt and uncle were burned alive, but still. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Oh, Joseph Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> also, by the way, how wild is it that young Owen just happened to be played by Joel Edgerton, who's now like a big deal, so that then they could be like, and also starring Joel Edgerton, and it's like, well, that that was lucky. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Uh, speaking of relations on this show, what do you, there's been a lot of, uh, fan uproar, uh, the shippers awaken, as it were, (laughs) all because of one line, like, opens up the floodgates of possibilities and what ifs, of what if Obi-Wan had much deeper feelings for Padme than originally planned. (laughs) I mean, so the line in question is when Leia asks if he's her her biological father and he pauses and says that no, but he wishes that he could say that. And I mean, I think that, I think if we're being honest with ourselves, that line was probably just supposed to say like, oh honey, I wish your father wasn't the person he is. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's really all it means. But on the other hand, I, you know what, there are some aspects of the prequel trilogy that I think would have made a bit more sense if Anakin had at least, like, textually, which I think he actually does in the book, for that matter, because the, I think the, the Revenge of the Sith novel is one of the only ones that's still canon, I think, and I'm pretty sure that at least it, it occurs to him that, you know, when he starts really descending into paranoia toward the end, he definitely starts thinking that uh, Obi-Wan and Padme were having an affair and the baby that Padme's carrying might not even be his. Mm. Yeah, I always found it very interesting like how they could have so easily done the uh, Arthur, Guinevere, and Lancelot angle, but they didn't, really. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely would have made sense. And there's certainly... I, I still think that there are definitely vibes of it there. Something that has always gotten me about the, the pre- Matt, we really are jumping all over. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing that I don't think was intentional that I find very interesting is that it's, I guess, some of the expanded universe material suggested that uh, relative to how we would look at the situation it was actually pretty much a reversal as far as keeping the pregnancy secret because you notice that throughout that movie, Padme is in no way dressing to disguise the fact that she's pregnant except for wearing a long cloak at the beginning so that she can surprise Anakin with the news. But you'll notice that like throughout that whole movie, her dresses are all designed, you know, with their, their maternity dresses. They show. <laughs> she has a baby bump. And apparently that's because in Naboo culture... If a woman gets pregnant and she doesn't mention a father, that's her own damn business. I did not know that. Yeah, apparently that's a whole thing. It's just, you know, if a, if if somebody... I, I shouldn't have been woman-specific there. Um, yeah, no, if, if somebody in Naboo culture shows up pregnant and they don't want to mention who the other parent is, it's it's nobody's business. That's not ever going to... That's not a... That's, it's not something that they worry about. So I think that it's interesting that, you know, 
for a lot of people, like a big formative fandom romance for them actually kind of reversed the gender dynamic where it was, it was the, in this case, it was the father who couldn't ever mention that the children, you know, that the children were his. Hmm. Uh, and that's why, and that's why, <laughs> that's why eventually Obi-Wan has that moment of being like, oh, the, the baby's Anakin's, isn't it? <laughs> Because it's just never come up until that point. Mm -hmm. She's just their friend who's pregnant. You know, that's her business. Ah, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Do you have any other uh, thoughts or scenes you liked or about this, these uh, episodes so far? So one thing that I was not aware of, until I was actually looking at it was I was going to get really excited because I thought that we had a connection, um, that we could make to something else that Ewan McGregor was in. But as it turns out, (laughs) as it turns out, I, I, I'm very disappointed to report that Queen Brea, uh, Leia's adoptive mother, is actually played by a different actress than she was for her silent appearance at the end of uh, Revenge of the Sith. And I was going to get so excited about that because I was going to be like, okay, so the one who plays her at the end of Revenge of the Sith, her name is, um, her name is Rebecca Jackson Mendoza and her sister, Natalie Mendoza was in Moulin Rouge. (laughs) I thought, and, and, I thought you were going to mention the fact that there's no been no reference to Obi-Wan's uh, old lover, Satine. Well, I was going to say that, uh, for that matter, I was going to, I was about to get very excited thinking about this because um, Natalie Mendoza is actually playing Satine on Broadway now. Satine from Moulin Rouge, not Satine from Star Wars, who was apparently <laughs> named that without... Dave Filoni knowing that that was the name of the girl in Moulin Rouge. <laughs> Which just makes the whole thing crazier. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the other few moments that I really liked uh, was in episode two where Obi-Wan and Leia uh, hitch a ride with a trucker with the best Oh, they're going there. Reveal with oh, the Oh yeah, driver. it's in the third episode. But yeah, no, when he, when the the nice trucker that picks them up and he's got a hand painted Empire flag on the back of his truck. <laughs> that worked. That that was well thought out. And you know what? I actually think it's even creepier that that despite what people were saying, I think it's actually much creepier that he wasn't actually the the Star Wars equivalent of a full-on rabid MAGA type. Because he was at least, this guy, if you notice, even though he praised the Empire, he did it in just a really chill, like, oh yeah, you know, good to keep the order going kind of way. It the, That was what made him that much scarier to me, was he was rational about it. Yeah. It's 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 not like he he wasn't a frothing Empire fanboy. He was just like, oh yeah, they're doing a good job. They're keeping things in line. Well, yeah, that's the brilliance of it and, like, the sadness of just how many people of, like, 
yeah, there would be certain people yeah. who would thrive under fascism by just not having to do anything. And of course, through their perspective, why would they question what's working out for them? Yeah, yeah. It was just that when I, you know, I actually got spoiled on that detail before I could actually see the episode. And it was presented as though this guy was like, you know, the Star Wars equivalent of like a frothing QAnon type. And I kind of feel like the fact that he wasn't is that much more unsettling. Well, yeah, that's it's unsettling because like every frothing QAnon type started out that way. Yeah. Of yeah. just like it's always just like so casual. Well, and for that matter, even if they never become a frothing QAnon type, they're also just kind of looking at the frothing QAnon types and just being like, huh, well, you know, folks is folks. Yeah, you just gotta live and let live. <laughs> Yeah, that and that's the impression I got off of him. And it's also then especially striking when then later on in the episode, you see, you know, we meet Tala, who actually signed up and became an imperial officer when she thought that this was going to be a good idea. And then as it started sliding into fascism, she was just like, I can't do this anymore. And she's she's kind of she's kind of Schindlering it, if you think about it. Oh, yeah. Not not quite in the same way. She's not, you know, disguising them within the Imperial workforce. But, you know, the idea of using her position that she has within the Empire as a front for actually helping, you know, remaining Jedi escape from the Empire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... It's... This show does good when it actually has, like, something political to say about what's going on in the background. I think that's why I like, because, you know, as much as some people complain about it, I love politics in my Star Wars. Yes! Because it's almost like Star Wars has always been about politics because, wait a minute, there's wars in the title? Wars are <laughs> always political, aren't they? I mean, you know, I guess a good place to leave this episode off is to remind you guys that you know the empire is america during the vietnam war especially the formation of the empire is the beginning of the iraq war this is this is like actually what lucas was looking at when he wrote those and the ewoks were specifically the Viet Cong. yes which sounds like a shit post, but we are absolutely, we are being completely, yeah, it was the idea that, that, you know, if you have a society that, you know, doesn't have the same technology, but still manages to just completely trounce, you know, this empire, you know, that's the idea. Yes, and that's It why was I... always political. It was always political. <laughs> You damn dirty apes. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this. I will say this uh, last thing. As I would have found it to be a much more interesting show, or if, like, we could have it at the same time, behind the scenes special of Disney execs trying to persuade Hayden Christensen to unretire from acting, and it plays exactly like episode one of Obi-Wan refusing the call over and over. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know what? It really makes me happy that that it 
that you know he's embraced returning to this so much and it and you really can tell that he must love it considering that he went into this knowing that his lines were gonna have to be dubbed over by james earl jones Mm -hmm. well i mean like pretty much all we see of him are like burn prosthetics in a tub and him just literally just standing for five seconds <laughs> yeah as, yeah that actually reminds me i you know i keep forgetting and this you know because i'd i'd read a couple of like the old expanded universe books and those had always made a pretty big point of oh no he is permanently fused into the suit and i was like wow that sounds fucking horrifying and then it gets to this where it's like, no, 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 he he is basically assembled into the suit anytime he needs to, like, be out on his own because he was left that vulnerable. And I'm like, wow, this is worse. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But at the same time, I've, you know, I've always thought, and this is probably my closing thought for the episode, I've always thought that on the one hand, Darth Vader is probably the archetypal disabled villain who is scary partially because he's disabled in pop culture. But on the other hand, I think it's actually really incredible that once they started going into the ways in which he is disabled, it's always used to remind you of that he's human. Mm. Even, even in an episode like this where he's, you know, the, the fact anytime they actually highlight the fact that he's disabled it's in a way that reminds you that he's vulnerable and something horrible happened to him you know it's it's the same reason why i personally don't think that you know i i personally think that like the reveal of raul silva's uh bond villain deformity in skyfall it's it's a deconstruction of the usual deformed bond villain trope because mm-hmm. this is something that happened to him when he was left in the same position that Bond was earlier in the movie. Yeah. But he didn't manage to escape in time. He tried to use his cyanide capsule and instead it melted out part of his fucking skull. It, you know, so that reveal, it's not just like, like, it's not just like, oh, he has a silly comic book villain tell. It's like, you know, yes, he does have a Bond villain deformity and, but it's directly tied to at this point why he's doing what he's doing in a very a to b way that like i i'm sorry it makes a lot of psychological sense of course not everybody who goes through an awful disfiguring accident is going to come out of it like vengeance crazed but it makes psychological sense that somebody would be yeah especially if they were already and and i think I think that that's also the situation with Vader, and I think that the third episode really underlines that. I mean, and once again, with the trying to burn Obi-Wan to death. I don't know about you, but during that scene, I merely thought, fire cannot kill a dragon. <laughs> I wasn't thinking that. I was just thinking, like, this this is the most emotionally unhinged we ever get to see him as Darth Vader, and it was terrifying. Oh, yeah. It, it's, you know, that's, that's the thing about him is normally he'll just irritably like start clutching a, his fist in your direction and, you know, and you start choking or whatever. 
it, you know, even when he's going through the town, he's barely looking at the people that he's, you know, slaughtering as he walks by. But this is something that he wants to stand there and watch. Mm-hmm. Because he, and he almost says as much, because he wants Obi-Wan to hurt as much as Obi-Wan hurt him. Because the opposite of love is hate, not indifference. Yeah, exactly. So join us next time where we uh, uh, recap the thrilling conclusion of the last three episodes of Obi-Wan. Yep, and uh, pretty soon, we actually thought it would be out by now, but um, sorry, Dr. Malcolm, but life does not always find a way. We have not actually been able to get uh, the first episode of our new pirate show podcast, which is currently focusing on black sails, um, but is going to gradually encompass a whole bunch of pirate media. Mm-hmm. But you do still have that to look forward to, as well as uh, next month, we've got uh, Thor Love and Thunder coming out. Thor and yes. Thor Accessories. <laughs> Floor four, Thor and Thor accessories. <laughs> that, one does that not... was that was a Gibson line, but I, I had to use that because it was a pretty good one. One does not simply walk into Thor door. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, good night. <laughs>